Welcome to Anthony Plogon Music. This is Eddie Ludema, the show's producer, here to introduce Tony's guest for this interview, David Bilger. Dave is an incredible trumpet player who's had a stellar career as both a performer and also an educator. He was principal trumpet with the Dallas Symphony and following that, principal with the Philadelphia Orchestra. After teaching at the Curtis Institute of Music for 27 years, he also became professor of trumpet at Northwestern's Beenan School of Music. As an example of how music can have a profound influence on a person's and even a family's life, Tony starts the conversation by asking Dave how he began teaching Basset Azizi from Afghanistan and how he was able to help Basset study in the United States. He talks about the powerful impact that process and journey, which at times was extremely dangerous, had on Basset and his family. Dave continues by talking about his two main teachers, Dave Hickman and Mark Gould, and their different approaches to teaching. As a student, Dave was a member of the Summer Student Orchestra, the Colorado Philharmonic, and he talks about what it was like to have Michael Sachs, now the principal trumpet of the Cleveland Orchestra, and Doug Prosser, who's now the principal trumpet of the Rochester Philharmonic, as roommates. Tony and Dave end part one with an in-depth discussion of auditions, including musical preparation, mental approaches, and even talking about some current issues with the orchestral audition process. But before Dave and Tony delve into their conversation, we'd love to share a brief message with you from our sponsor friends at Dorico. Create music that moves with Dorico 5, the brand new version of the music notation and composition software from Steinberg. Packed with new features throughout the application, it's the perfect time to update from your current version or to try Dorico for the first time. You can start for free with Dorico SE or Dorico for iPad, which now allow projects with up to eight players. Or step up to Dorico Elements, which now allows projects of unlimited size and features an expanded engrave mode. For professional use, choose Dorico Pro, which has many unique features you won't find in any other software. Visit www.steinberg.net forward slash Dorico today and make more time for music. Dave Bilger, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. We have a lot to talk about, and I would like to first start out uh, with uh, an interview you did. I don't know if you'd call it an interview, but I think it was called the One Minute Trumpet, and you were asked what your motto was, and you said your motto was, do it now. So we'll start with this question, what are you doing now? What am I doing now? <laughs> yeah, well, outside of this interview. Yeah, I'll drink in coffee. <laughs> yeah, okay. That's right, it's in the morning for you. It is. Well, I mean, I'm teaching it. At Northwestern. Um, I'm in my final moments of teaching at the Curtis Institute. Um, I'm going to be going through uh, the end of, of April of 24 and then turning the studio over to Mike Sachs, which is sort of exciting. Um, and then I'll be at Northwestern full time. I'm still playing the trumpet some. Um, just played a week with Philly in my old gig, which was a surprisingly moving experience after being out of the the orchestra for 15 months to step back into the chair felt pretty pretty normal and pretty good and more fun than I thought it might even be yeah. and that was um, christmas program right yeah it was uh, it was the glorious sound of christmas which is you know and i played a family concert so i was joking that those were the shows i used to try to get out of <laughs> when i was in the band but but now i came back for it but you know so i'm playing teaching just not playing every thursday friday saturday yeah. night are you doing more solo playing? I've done a few recitals this year. Um, played actually uh, some stuff at Chosen Vale with Ed Carroll. Um, 
was at the Hamamatsu International Music Festival in August. Did some solo playing there and also uh, played in a wind band, which I hadn't done since college. So that was sort of interesting. Uh, although half the repertoire were orchestral transcriptions, which I thought was a little ironic. But did a little mini recital at UC Boulder. So some playing like that, you know, it's just um, finding a new balance between um, lots of teaching and uh, and still still getting out there and and getting the mouthpiece to the face, you know. Well, I'd like to start with, with a story that I think maybe shows sort of a tendency that you have had over the years. And correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I think over the years, your trumpet playing has obviously grown as as anybody's would. You've always been great, but you made me great in in a different sense now. But also as a person, and it seems like you more and more give to people. And I think the prime example of that is the experience you had with Basset uh, Azizi. And some people have heard about this already, uh, so I'm sorry if this is repeating something that some people have heard, but I, I find this to be an incredibly moving story. And I actually have an addendum to that story, which I think you would enjoy hearing as well. Okay. Um, so so if you could start with, with how you came in touch with Basset and, and what happened. Because this, to me, this is a great experience, a great example of of using music to really help people. Well, it also shows the reach of the internet because Bassett reached out to me over Facebook and he sent a Facebook message, which was, hi, my name is Bassett and I'm the best trumpet player in Afghanistan because there's only two. And That's great. I just, I just laughed, you know, I just like laughed out loud at that. And I was like, okay, I gotta, I gotta find out what this kid's about. Right. <laughs> and, um, and so we, uh, found a way to, to meet up, um, using uh well we it back it was a while ago so we tried a bunch of different platforms and we ended up using zoom which was uh relatively unstable especially with his internet connection in afghanistan but um we started working together because he was like hey i really want to get better on the trumpet i want to go to interlock and i'm like well let's start working on the trumpet playing first and see where it takes you and so we would do these these lessons and uh you know, time change was the difference between Kabul and uh, and Philly was challenging. You know, just finding times where we could do it, and it ended up being fairly early in the morning for him, um, and fairly late at night for me. Um, and one day he was a little late, and and well, he was actually there on time, but he hadn't warmed up. And I'm like, "What's up?" And he goes, "Well, you know, it rained." And I was like. What, what does that have to do with anything? Um, and then he said, well, I'll send you some pictures. And he sent me photographs and it was, it rained, but he was trudging through like two feet of mud in the streets to try to get to the uh, Afghan National Institute of Music on him where he had internet and a microphone and could actually do the lessons. He was making sacrifices to make that work uh, for us to meet. And then we worked on, you know, getting his materials together. There's a wonderful woman in, in Dallas named Robin Coravar, who I knew from my time in Dallas, who um, was involved and she did a lot of the paperwork kind of stuff. She helped with uh, uh, filling out you know, his applications and stuff. And I did the musical stuff. And he sent in an application and, and music and uh, they offered him a spot, which I thought was really cool. Uh, really excited. They offered him a good deal of scholarship money, which was half. And I'm like, okay, but we got to fly him over. We got to get him set up over here. We need, for one year, we need to get 35 grand. Oh my gosh, what am I going to do? 
And so I started a GoFundMe and, and people just like stepped up and it, it became sort of a big deal. And we had some, some really wonderful folks. Um, Yannick Nizes again, a music director in, in Philly, gave, uh, gave five grand towards it. Chairman of the board matched that. And then we got donations from $5 on up and made it work. And then there was an issue, um, it was during a, a time politically when um, we were most more interested in keeping the country closed, shall I say? So it was quite a uh, an ordeal getting his getting him his F one visa to come and study. And in fact, uh, at first it was denied. And so I'm like, oh my gosh, we've done all of this stuff, and he's not going to get into the country. But eventually it worked out, and um, he got a call from the embassy in Kabul to come in and. <laughs> He wasn't sure what that was about, but it was actually to give him his visa. And, um, and then he came over and from there, right before he came, he said, can we do a, a zoom with my parents? And I'm like, I guess. And so I was in Colorado and, um, I was in it like a small crummy condo and I had, my son was fairly young at the time and it was just a one bedroom. I had nowhere to sort of be quiet and be on the internet. So I went down into the lobby of the hotel and, um, and so his parents who only speak Pashto are on the, on the call. And, uh, it was on a speaker and people are looking at me like I'm some sort of terrorist or something, right? Cause there's his, his dad was a little severe and he was wearing all black and speak, speaking a dialect of Farsi, which is what Pashto is. And, um, but his dad was like, thank you, thank you. His mom's crying. His dad is like, you've got to make sure he gets to go to college in the U.S. too. And I'm like, oh, man, I just finished one project. <laughs> and now I'm going to start another. But That's it, a big responsibility. It was. And, you know, once again, it was one step at a time. Let's just let's get through getting him started at interlocking first and see what happens. But as it worked out, um, you know, he ended up doing his uh, – his undergrad did another GoFundMe, raised um, over eighty grand for his college. I mean, people were so generous. Um, it was uh, there were over eleven hundred donors. So if you ever start to doubt humanity, well, this this sort of um, showed me that people do still care. And um, it was interesting because uh, Fox News had picked up the story, and so there are all sorts of people like donating to a Muslim kid from Fox News. Right, that's amazing. Seemed ironic to <laughs> oh, me. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. like, but it was a story, right? You know, it was, it was this, yeah. this story. It's it, who could not respond to this kid wanting to make his life better through music. You know, I always knew that the trumpet might end up being ancillary to him. It might just be getting him here. Um, he can play, um, but he also is sort of brilliant. He did a triple major in college and is now, um, motiv doing motivational speaking and he's working for a, a nonprofit NGO that is um, helping immigrants. I mean, you know, if the Taliban ever leaves, he's going to go be president of Afghanistan. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, he's uh, he's amazing, amazing guy. I've heard that where he's working now also, he like revamped their computer system or something in a way that is being used around the country now. So, I mean, you're right. I mean, he sounds like a completely brilliant guy. And very, very nice. And it all started with the trumpet. He just loved the trumpet and he wanted to do something. But, you know, the trumpet for so many folks is a, is a way out of where their existence is at that moment. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Whether it's somebody from 
from New York City or Kabul or Paris or you name it, you know, folks are, um, it's a way to experience life in a different way and to escape our realities. And for him, it was both a, a physical one um, and, and more of a, an emotional reality that he was able to escape by coming over. Right. And I'm, I'm sure you know the story about how, his, how he got his parents over, like the last moment with, with the uh, photograph and all of that. Which is amazing. We were all freaking out a little bit when it became clear that with our leaving Afghanistan, things were going to get bad really quickly um, for for many of the folks over there. So um, my wife and I were, were busy trying to help an NGO process paperwork to try to get everybody that we could find out that wanted to get out, which was a lot of the staff and the musicians from the... Afghan National Institute of Music, and they actually, um, they did get out over to Portugal. Didn't work to bring him to the U.S., but you know, we were all freaking out, and Basset, instead of freaking out, was just getting it done, and he had been uh, doing a lot of work. Um, he'd interned in D.C., and so he knew he was politically connected, and uh, he had an ID from having gone to a house vote with the person he was interning for, and he sent it to his sister via text, and his sister is like, "This is my brother. He's 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 in the U.S. government." <laughs> and the the uh, soldiers let them in, and Basset had arranged a flight for them. Um, and that was the day that there was the bombing at that gate. They got through about an hour before um, there was carnage right there. So it's a it's an amazing story. The whole thing's an amazing story, and it's you know it's sort of what we do, which is. In music, which has changed lives one at a time. I had I had heard that they were not going to let him, not going to let his family through, and and as a last ditch effort, he thought, oh well, I'll uh, text this photo, and that yeah. that did the trick. And then, like I guess an hour later, just where his family was it was was bombed. Yeah, that's where that's where the bomb went off. Yeah, yeah. And they had gone through. Um, it was it was quite an ordeal for them to actually get from where they lived to the airport because there were. Taliban patrols and his dad had been um, involved with NATO so he was things were not going to go well if, if he was caught so they had called in some favors I think to sort of get to the airport in the first place at great risk and then they weren't going to be let in I had, I had the follow-up that I had or the addendum to this was that last uh, January I was in in Houston for an opera convention and the final day um, I was with Ron Kidd a good friend of mine and librettist and uh, Roger Stoner, who, um, who has a close uh, relationship also with Bassett, was there, and we were being served at the hotel several days by this this young Afghan woman, um, very sweet girl. I, I won't say her name, um, but very sweet girl who had yet to get her green card, and we ended up talking to her, and she really wanted to get her green card, but there were so many hoops to jump through, et cetera, et cetera, and the very last day... Um, Roger had Bassett's uh, telephone number, and we called Bassett, uh, uh, where she could do like a, a video conference with him. And I've never seen somebody express such joy in her face. They 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 spoke. It's called Farsi, I guess, or what is the other? Oh, uh, well, it's it's a dialect of yeah. Farsi called Pashto. Yeah, Pashto. Okay, okay. But but that was sort of like a follow up, and that was the first time, actually, the only time I've I've met him, and that was only to. To say hello and thanks for helping this, this girl. <laughs> but he seems like just a marvelous person. He is an amazing young man. 
Anyway, I guess some of the things that we should talk about have to do with trumpet. So That's a good uh, idea. Yeah, yeah, why not? So um, your two main teachers, I think, were, were Dave Hickman and Mark Gould. And um, I happened to, to mention that to my wife, Kathy, and her response was to say, he must really like abuse. So um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about Dave and, and Mark, because they're both great teachers, but I think they accentuate different aspects of playing or music. And maybe you could talk about what you got from both, both of those teachers. Yeah, so I did my undergrad at University of Illinois with, um, with, with Dave Hickman, and it was, it was interesting because um, he was a very demanding teacher, and he took great pride in making sure his students were well-prepared, which has to do with you know, not making excuses, pushing things, always being on top of things. The approach was more like fixing technical stuff, which I guess you would think is pretty normal for working with an undergrad student. Um, you know, just making sure transposition is there, single tonguing, double tonguing, triple tonguing, flexibility, rain, you know, all the, check all the boxes. But it was uh, a lot of what he did, which was sort of amazing from a student's point of view, is he would be like, well, kid, play it like this. And he'd pick up a trumpet cold and just nail something. And then you would try to sound like that wasn't necessarily deep in a way of like, well, here's what you're doing physically or here's what you're thinking about when you're doing this. It was just hear it, do it, which um, there's a beautiful simplicity to that, actually, um, if you're able to actually hear it and do it. <laughs> but right. honestly, it, you know, it, it, it worked in a, an amazing way, and I'm not um, disparaging that style of teaching at all, but it wasn't necessarily sort of looking at things intellectually and emotionally it was much more technical and here's what you do and with my um upbringing which which uh, gould used to denigrate for being some sort of like midwest kid he called used to call me preacher dave and um <laughs> okay and he's always like i gotta meet your parents i gotta meet your parents like you're so boring and you're so straight and narrow and you didn't you know like did he ever meet your parents he did actually, and it was it was it was um, well. That's a whole other story. But it was, was, it I was just want to ask: Was he well behaved, or or was he? He luck? was exceptionally well behaved. Okay, yes. <laughs> that's yes. great. Yeah, I mean, it was like the five minutes in his life where he was well behaved. But yeah, uh, I appreciate that from him. But when I got to study with Gould, it was more like well, the first thing he said is, "You sound pretty good from some for some white boy from the Midwest, but you're in New York now, and you got to learn to play like a Jew." And I'm like, yes, sir, Mr. Gould. I had no idea what he just said. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's like, what does that mean? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Especially yes, sir, know. as an answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was just like, yes, sir. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But his point of view was you have to think about music and you have to feel it. You know, it's all about impact and the emotionality behind it and wearing your heart on your sleeve, which being like a, a boring white kid from the Midwest was not exactly my natural um inclination on the horn so it opened up things in a different way but i wouldn't have been able to do that had i not had the the background that that dave hickman gave me of of, of technical stuff so mm -hmm. it was a really healthy progression for me it worked it worked well for me i'm not sure how it would have worked for others but um in that way it was like i was ready to to learn the lessons that mark wanted to teach because of the background i'd had with dave yeah i was i remember one time i was in new york and i went to hear to go to Damrung at, at the Met. 
And there was one sort of a lyrical trumpet phrase, I'm sure you know it. And Levine turned to Mark as he was playing it and, and just smiled. You could tell that he just really liked what Mark was doing. And so I went down to the pit during the break to say hi. And Mark was not there, but on his stand was a book, and the book was Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry. <laughs> so, so he's playing Wagner and reading about cowboys. I, I, thought that, I guess that's pretty typical for Mark. I thought that was great. Well, Mark talked about the opera. Uh, when he was uh, forbidding me from taking an audition at the Met. <laughs> really? Because he said, he said, it's a retirement job. <laughs> <laughs> it was a section job and he goes you're just going to be here forever and you're just going to be bored and it's just your quickest way to to death and i'm like okay yes sir mr gold <laughs> wow that's interesting um, because i mean there's some incredibly great moments in opera but it's it's the idea of the of it being moments yeah versus yeah. being being continuously able to to contribute um but in talking with mark further about it later he he talked about how um you feel time pass differently when you're in the pit. Really? How so? Um, because everything is slower. I mean, you, you know, you, you do have sometimes, like if you're playing Magic Flute, you've got 50 minutes <laughs> where you just sit and read Lonesome Dove yeah. um, or whatever, whatever you feel like. You know, it's moments of intensity surrounded by hours of monotony, I think. And, and he said, you just, your body gets into this vibe where you're just moving slower, you know, and that for Mark could have been chemical, but, um, at the, <laughs> at the same time, um, <laughs> it's also like a, a point of view. Like you just, it, it does feel different than being on the stage in a symphony orchestra. Yeah. And I would think Mark is the type of person that, that would need a lot of stimulation. I would think. Yeah. I mean, I think intellectually, you know, he w would want to be engaged. The thing about Mark is that um, he's a student of the craft. So, you know, sitting there in the Met and hearing the singers, some of the best singers in, you know, on the planet or maybe ever doing what they do right above you, um, that can keep you pretty engaged. Yeah, for sure. And I'm sure he got a lot of great ideas about phrasing from the singers. Too. Oh, without a doubt. And also, I know it's easy to, to bash um, James Levine for some of his personal shortcomings, some of which you know could easily be called criminal. But as a musician, oh my goodness, I got to sub at the mat and watch him work. And what he could bring to the podium was something incredibly special. I know that Mark sure liked We won't comment on all the other yeah, stuff. Yeah, the other stuff. But, yeah, it's pretty yeah, um, Behavior that's inexcusable and enabled because of his great talent on the podium. Well, it's a different era, too. Yes. That stuff wouldn't... It, it, no one can do that anymore. Yeah. Um, thank God, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So you also had... Uh, I guess it was just a week of lessons with Tom Stevens? Yeah. Um, yeah. Since I guess we're going down this route of, uh, road of abuse, because um, I studied with Tom, too, and, and Tom could be, <laughs> shall we say, very direct. But you, you played... Uh, I guess you played the Henderson Variation Movements for him? Yeah, you did a lot of homework, didn't you, Tony? <laughs> <laughs> I did some, yeah. Uh, yeah. Just actually, just a call out. Um, uh, there's a great interview with you from Mark uh, Doolin on on Mark's mouthpiece. So if anybody's yeah. interested in, in exploring things further, that's a great interview. I mean, I've listened to other things too, but yeah, that's a great interview. Oh, thanks. Um, oh, Mark's fun, but uh, yeah. So it was up in in Banff. Um, I was up there with my brass quintet, and it was um, six weeks at the festival and one week 
was with Tom Stevens and Roger Bobo was also up there. Okay. And then Canadian Brass, and I'm talking about with with Ronnie Rahm and Freddie Mills was was up there for the rest of the time. So I got a week with Tom Stevens, which was, I have to say, I've heard all of these stories, and I did witness him be um, painfully direct with some folks. Um, but with me, he was always incredibly generous with his time and um, very helpful and very positive. So I don't know if I caught him at a good moment or, mm-hmm. or, uh, or, or what, but I didn't experience any of, the, um, any of that other stuff, although I was prepped for it because I'd been warned. Right. But when I was playing Henderson, what's the best recording of that piece? Well, there's Tom's, right? Yeah. I mean, so I had lived with that recording and probably given where I was in my in my life, which was second year of undergrad and having been working with with uh, Hickman saying, well, OK, play it like this. I treated the recording as 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 my teacher and I was probably playing it back as close to the way Stevens played it as I could possibly do it. So that might have been a, one of the re- ways that it went a little easier on me is that there was no sort of moving away from the way he saw the piece. He's one of the one of the greats, you know, one of the yeah. all time greats. And what what he did for for us as trumpet players is incredibly meaningful. All the commissioning, all of the expansion of solo repertoire, um, all that. Well, you know, sounding great in the orchestra every day. It's, yeah, yeah, for it's sure. Really amazing. You know, you think about uh, modern wise, where it's like, okay, Hokan has commissioned all this, all these things, but. Um, before Hokan, it was Tom Stevens commissioning all those works and recording things and showing us, you know, Paris Conservatory rep that people had been overlooking. And I mean, it's just, just amazing. Yeah. You know, it's somehow, I'll just get this by really quickly, but um, on that album with the, the Henderson is also the Frank Campo Times. Uh-huh. And yeah. um, F- Frank said that he gave the music to Tom and um, it has like, you know, a page or two pages of notes at the beginning. And he called Tom like about two days later and he said, um, I'd like to, you know, if you'd like to get together, I can explain the piece to you. And Tom said, uh, I've already recorded it. And Frank listened to the recording and he said, everything was there that he wanted. You know, it was just perfect the way he wanted it. There you go. Yeah. So there you go. Well, anyway, get back to you. Um, Colorado Philharmonic, um, which is now the National Repertory Orchestra. You were there for one summer, and you're, what, what a group of roommates. It was you and Michael Sachs, and, uh, who plays first with Cleveland, and, and Doug uh, Prosser, Prosser? Prosser, yeah. Prosser, who plays first with uh, Rochester Philharmonic. And what was that like, the three of you guys rooming together? I was a, it was a little crazy. I actually did two summers at NRO, so that okay. was my second, uh, my second summer there. Um, well, back back in, back in the day, yeah. um, when you got into what was then called the Colorado Philharmonic, you got a, a, a letter, you know, not an email, but actually like, you know, when, when people used mail. Right. I don't know if you remember back to that. I um, do. <laughs> and, it, and it started off with like, being at the Colorado Philharmonic is a lot like camping. How <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. Because okay. it was, the facilities they had was had been like they'd purchased an abandoned uh, Boy Scout camp, <laughs> literally, <laughs> and that's where we stayed. So the accommodations were just horrific, and um, so we were in this this corner room in a cabin, and um, there was a in the bathroom there was a 
a bear claw tub that didn't work and we just had piles of trumpet cases in there um but it, you know it was a uh, it was a time where most of the time you're just out out of the room and just practicing outdoors or going for hikes or, or, or doing whatever but it was um it was big fun i mean doug was um I think a year younger, maybe two, and he grew up in that area. So we'd go over to his uh, his parents' house in uh, Golden, Colorado, and played some golf up at attitude up at altitude, which was fun because you could actually feel like a golfer because the ball went like forty percent further. Because really, okay, there. yeah. <laughs> and um, you know, we, so we had fun, but we played a lot of music. I mean, just a, a ton of repertoire, and then. Um, Mike came back and did the next summer as well and sort of took the reins as the, the head honcho that, that, that second summer. I, you know, I just think back on that, and, and I think you guys are now like three iconic players over many years. But as students, I mean, were you just serious all the time, or, or did you have your Oh, no, crazy, I mean, come on. It's, it, well, first of all, it's summer festival, so I right. mean, you just, you know. There was also an era where there was a lot more overt partying going on i think then <laughs> is uh-huh. is allowed now i think a lot of the festivals um they keep them a slight bit more of a watchful eye on what's going on so there were um i shouldn't i shouldn't tell a lot of stuff but <laughs> <laughs> well, um tell it and if, if need be we can edit it out later yeah i mean there was there was a concert that was a, a fundraiser and um it was just a an awful sort of play some Strauss waltzes and some, you know, a couple of pops tunes and, um, for noisy audience of, of drunks. So some people that have been there in the past, one of them, um, a bass player went and got a keg for before the concert. (laughs) So most of the orchestra and this, this, this again highlights, um, Gould calling me preacher Dave was like, no, I have to play. I'm not going to drink until after the concert. Yeah, yeah. But um, I might have been the only one in the band who wasn't ripped for the show. Uh-huh. <laughs> and um, it really showed. The orchestra was um, pretty terrible that night. And the next morning we had rehearsal. And um, Carl Topolo was a conductor. And um, he showed up and just absolutely reamed the orchestra out. He goes, you know, for most of you, this could be the best orchestra you ever play in. And you're treating it like this. And he just like, whoa, it was just, it was brutal. And, you know, a lot of folks were not feeling so great that morning either (laughs) after a a night of some hard partying. So, um, no, it was not all work. Uh, and plus you're in Colorado, so you, you know, you want to be out in nature and you want to be doing stuff. And, right, right. Um, but it was a good balance, I think. Um, but it was really clear at that point that the folks who took it seriously were going to go farther than the folks who didn't. And it, it set things up really nicely for the next year when Mike and I were um, both getting in, uh, starting at the MM program at Juilliard together. We were in a brass quintet. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if Mike is t- talking about doing crazy things. I don't know if you you played this concert, but I think it was Ein Heldenleben at Juilliard, where Mike <laughs> and Dave Mayo, um, between the dress rehearsal and the concert, completely shaved their heads for the concert. Yeah, I, I was not playing the show, but I was in the audience. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That must have been stunning, I would think. Well, they played great. I mean, it sounded amazing, but seeing uh-huh. seeing those guys with the head shave was was a little a little bit funny. Yeah. yeah and then it, Dave Mayo ended up. Uh, joining the uh the air force yeah he became a pilot 
pilot. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, it fit maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's great. Wow. Well, when you, you, of course, after you graduated, you, well, you played in the brass quintet with Michael at, at Juilliard, but after you graduated, you did a lot of freelancing and you actually played in like, some I don't know if you say jazz or commercial groups. I think it was like on yeah. Mondays, and and you played with Lou Soloff amongst other people. That must have been a fantastic experience. I would yeah. Think. I had uh, when I was an undergrad at University of Illinois. I had the experience of of playing a lot of jazz, and actually I had played a lot of jazz in high school, and um, gotten a, a scholarship to college from Woody Herman because there was a, a jazz improv competition that he ran. That for some crazy reason I did well in because that wasn't exactly my forte but you know I could sort of get around enough and and so I c continued to, to play jazz so when I got to New York it was it seemed sort of natural to play in some you know in some commercial stuff so I ended up subbing Broadway shows which was which was great um played some you know television jingles in the studios but on Mondays um when Broadway was dark uh, there were these what they called rehearsal bands because you didn't rehearse you rehearsed on the job <laughs> and um and that I played in uh, a band that was uh, run by um Tom Pearson was his name he had an incredible jazz pianist um and and writer and the band sometimes Lou Soloff was playing Mike Mossman I don't know if you know Mike Philip Mossman but he's um terrific terrific jazz player um saxes um you know sometimes it was you, know, you never knew who was going to show up but it was guys from like saturday night live band would be there um you know it was just anthony jackson played bass kenwood denard played drums i mean it was like all first call world um and i was you know started off on fourth trumpet and then got moved up to third trumpet and then you know like one day played second trumpet and went no I'm, give me some of those lower parts again um but yeah, I got to play with Lou and, and actually played some um, some commercial stuff with him. Did you ever play with Philadelphia, let's say, did you ever play like a, a Pops concert where you actually took a couple of solos, jazz solos? Yeah, more in Dallas because we, um, uh, when I was there during my seven years there, we did like 14 weeks a year of Pops. So it was a lot of Pops. Um, so, you know, if the changes were in the book, you play the changes, yeah. Yeah. Well, with the orchestras, you've, played with to get into these orchestras you've had to take auditions of course and you um have a lot of students now who i think are playing in orchestras and i wanted to get your ideas on um number one how you would prep for an audition and would that be different from student to student and then also in terms of taking the audition mentally if you would give your students ideas of how to approach an audition how to how to get the best results on that particular day sure well that's that's a good nuts and bolts kind of question i mean first of all to preface that the audition process sucks and it is broken um and you know i can't think of a better one a better way to do it but you know you see auditions where there's no hires and it's not that there aren't good players there it's the way the process works and the way the committees are formed and sort of a lack of unanimity sometimes on what folks are listening for um, and the reason I'm bringing this up be before we talk about preparation and performance of auditions, um, it's really important to understand, if you can, what a, a specific orchestra might be looking for. Is there a style that that orchestra plays in? Um, is Do you know, if it's a section job, what does the first player do? If it's a principal job, what's the tradition of that orchestra? Um, is it more of a, a powerhouse? Is it... Um, 
is it uh, an accuracy-based ensemble? Is it a, a one that values individualism and musicianship more because it affects how you're gonna how you're gonna approach excerpts and what you're gonna play? Mm-hmm. With, with that in mind, let me just ask a quick question. With that in mind, if you were a younger player now, a super talented younger player, um, who could fill a position, a big position, and there was let's say a principal trumpet open in Philadelphia. Or Chicago <laughs> or New York. Yeah, which there is right now. Yeah, yes, yeah, I, exactly, yeah. exactly. But there's not in Chicago or New York. But if there were openings in those three orchestras, would you prepare differently in terms of the way you play? Or would you just think, here's the way I play, and if it fits your orchestra, great. If it doesn't, I just want to give the best example of what I can do. Well, that's a f- fascinating philosophical question. No wonder you're a composer. You're a deep thinker guy. Right? <laughs> okay. Um, well, no, I mean, it is a... a because there's different answers to that one as well. If you want the best chance of winning the job, then you adjust what you do. A lot or some? Some. Mm-hmm. I mean, because you can't be a ventriloquist either. You can't pretend to be something you're not, right? Yeah. Um, but you can adjust what you do or highlight certain aspects of what you do to make, to make yourself more um, palatable to committee. However if one of those orchestras were to not really play in a style that fits you well, do you want that job? Yes. So that's a secondary question. If your goal is winning, then by all means make some adjustments and understand exactly what that orchestra is about. But the other way of thinking about it is, well, I'm going to do what I do. And if that resonates great. And if it doesn't, that's fine because then I'll find a place where I can, you know, it just depends on how badly you want the job and how, whether it's a professional decision or an artistic decision. Right. They're different. And you think auditions are broken just across the board or more with like specific orchestras or maybe even specific countries or just that an audition is, is well, I think more uh, definitely more in the, in the U S than in Europe. Um, because the processes are completely different from country, you know, in, in, in Europe than they are in the U S the problem with, with the U S and, and, I would encourage people not to read more into this, like this being specific to Philadelphia, because I think it's it's more universal than that. But committees, um, for a lot of reasons, one being that um, the people on committees tend to be also teachers, will look for really correct, like I call it factual playing, you know, everything perfectly in time and in tune and with a good sound and at the right tempo whatever that is, whatever that means. Um, but, you know, total middle, middle of the road, you, you just go for exactly an average interpretation of everything and play it with super, super technique. And those tend to be the players that get passed on, the ones that can come closest, closest to that ideal. And then you reach uh, the finals when the music director is there and they're looking for Sure, they want it to be correct, but they also are looking for something much more. And maybe you haven't passed through the players that offer that. And so the conductor's not happy. If conductor's not happy, no one gets hired, right? Right. The other issue is, you know, having a committee before things start, have a discussion about what they're looking for in a player. If it's a section job, maybe you do want more factual player. You don't need to have as much imagination for a utility job as you would for a principal job, but get a sense of, well, are we looking for a sound that augments or or matches a player or 
that has more brilliance because it's principal or we want something that's richer because it's, you know, fourth trumpet or like, you know, just have a sense together of what qualities they're looking for in, in a player. And I think orchestras in the U S tend not to do that. You know, I wonder though, if you would have a meeting like that, if the strings, a string player would say that they wanted a certain thing and a brass player or wind player might want something fairly different from that. Do you think that could be or, or not? Well, that's why you need to have those discussions, not in the finals, <laughs> because yeah, at that point right. it's too late. <clears throat> you're going to have no votes and, and you're going to have a no hire because no one will get enough votes. The difference in Europe, however, is I think that the general level of musicianship tends to be higher because there's a cultural competency in classical music that we tend not to have in the U.S. Hmm. Did I just step in something pretty big there? Probably. No. I, um, let me let me just throw out a couple of things and, and th- see what you think. Um, the person I just interviewed uh, before you was Andreas Neubrunner, who's uh, a producer and engineer. He's won eight Grammys, and he did the Mahler Cycle with San Francisco, and he's recorded Murray Pariah and people like that. Um, he really knows his stuff. And he says American orchestras are just great. He loves American orchestras compared to... To German orchestra, right? Because no take, no takes get ruined, right? Everybody's so competent that you, <laughs> yeah. you don't have to go back and cover stuff, right? Yeah, and he says it's so it's done so professionally, um, mm-hmm. and and everything. Whereas in in Germany, maybe it doesn't. And and one thing that's always bothered me about Germany is the first round is just the Haydn trumpet concerto on a B flat um, German trumpet, right? Which to me doesn't really show what you could do as an orchestral player. But you know, that's my own. Um, I guess rant. Uh, I, I agree with you. I'm just saying, in general, the 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 level of understanding of what an orchestra is supposed to sound like is is just greater in in especially in Germany because uh, it's part it's it's a greater part of the culture. Yes, we have a neighbor. Actually, he's moved now. Actually, he was a, a professor of philosophy, I think, just a couple of houses up the street who especially loved late Romantic German music. And uh, the Basel Opera Symphony did Frau ohne Schatten. This was a number of years ago. He and his wife, I think, went five or six times. Um, and, and so he would ask me about music, even though he was this incredibly brilliant man. And you just find that a lot more in Europe, where the average, if, if you'd say average person, um, really has much more of a connection with music than in the United States. Sure. And I, I don't know the answer to this. You might, but how many concerts of the, the in Berlin Phil? How many uh, programs do they do where they're where they're playing back up to a film? <laughs> um, probably none. I know they none, do some John right? Williams. Zero. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Whereas in the U.S., how do we get audiences in now? It's like okay, well, we'll we'll play Elf at Christmas or Nightmare Before Christmas, and then we'll do uh, uh, some John Williams scores. And I, you know, of course, the music's great. But that's what we do to bring people in versus play core rep and have, have the, the seats filled. It's, it's yeah. different. It's you different. know that things have really changed if an orchestra plays Bad Santa for Christmas. Then, <laughs> 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 I don't think we're going to see that day. Well, maybe, a couple of years down the road, maybe. Maybe. Still, maybe okay. We might be on the way there. Okay. Yeah. Well, anyway, preparation for an audition. Um, what would you tell students in terms of how to prepare like, for an audition? Well, having sat in a lot of committees, um, the greatest number of players self-select out of the first round. Now, I was just talking about factual playing, and I was sort of denigrating it, but 
<laughs> you still need to play in time and in tune with a good sound <laughs> and good mm-hmm. articulation. Yeah. And 80% of the players don't. It, of the four things you listed, is there one particular area that's especially weak, like intonation or rhythm? or? Uh, well, pitch, I think, is number one. Um, if it's a section job or a, a second job, um, low articulation, uh, those are huge weaknesses. When, when Tony Prisk got the job in, in Philly, we had <laughs> 317 resumes. Wow. Wow. Right. Okay. And invited about 165 live. And I think, you know, over a hundred came first round had, um, we started with a Leonor call, I think, and pictures and, um, those were fine. I mean, everybody played a decent pictures. I mean, did somebody miss the high A flat? Yeah, I'm sure someone did, but, but everybody was pretty good. The, the two excerpts that got everyone cut who were cut was Carmen because of intonation mostly. And the second trumpet part for the last movement of Beethoven five because people couldn't go and tongue low C's and low G's, especially on the sixteenth, I guess. Yep. Well, sort of on all of it. I mean, why is Beethoven violin concerto second trumpet? Why is that an excerpt? It's one note, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's sort of taken care of business, and this is the work that students need to be doing you know, from day one, but especially through college is just getting those basics in play. Um, excerpts are so much easier than solos, but yet we have whole groups of people that just want to play five excerpts. That's what they practice. That's what they want to do instead of learning varied rep and and stretching themselves with solo repertoire, which is going to show you when you're not even across registers and when you're not playing in tune, when you're not playing with good articulation. And over in Europe, a a lot of, an awful lot of students know the excerpt, but they don't even know the piece. Well, well, yeah, here, well, in the U.S. too. One of your favorite blogs, one of your favorite blogs is the one where you, you talk about doing, you know, playing the opening of Petrushka or the opening of Beethoven 9, first movement and people not knowing trumpet students not knowing what the piece is actually brass students brass students it's it's horrific (laughs) yeah or or a horn player none of the horn students could identify the beginning of Tchaikovsky fifth the first movement yeah so you know balancing the technical approach with study of music is really important but back to prepping you know people have the students the good students and there's a lot of them have figured out how to play in tune and in time good articulation and good sound. Then you apply that over to the excerpts. Um, Understand that if you listen to five recordings and four of them have roughly the same tempo, don't pick the one that's the fifth. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Um, Which, you know, could be the Eastern Slovenian Radio Orchestra, which I'm sure is a fine institution. But, um, you know, it's like, well, what did you, where did you find that? What was it? YouTube or Spotify. And it's like, yeah, but there was other ones you could pick, <laughs> right? Let me ask you a question about intonation, and this is just a, sort of a hypothetical question, but I've wondered about this. So if you're on the committee and they ask uh, the chorale from Academic Festival Overture, and if you're thinking of, of just intonation, so you have G you know, as the pickup, and then you have E, top part of the staff, which is the third of C major, and then D, which is the fifth of G, if you're playing alone, would you play that with uh, tempered intonation? And then if you're playing with a section, would you play it with just intonation? Or would you play it with just intonation, even if you're playing alone, to show the committee that you're, that you're aware that it's a third and a fifth? Sure. 
okay. I got it. <laughs> Look, no, no, no. I, this is a philosophical question. Yeah, and, it's a philosophical. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I, I mean, know, um, but it's actually a brilliant question. Once again, you're pr proving proving you're a thinking a thinking man. Well. Why did you ever play the trumpet? Um, yeah. Well, I, I know this. This that's when I can't get to sleep at night. I guess that's right. There I you do. go. Yeah. <laughs> and this sounds incredibly geeky, but I've had this this discussion with Tony Prisk. You know, when uh, because as a second player, he's always thinking about where he is on a chord tone. You know, bringing the thirds down, bringing fifths up, bringing you know, moving, and that's why he's such a good second, and that's why. When we play together, it's, it's super easy because he's thinking that way pitch-wise. What I encourage students to do is to do half-just intonation. <laughs> okay. Right? So you're not going to bring that E down 12 cents, but maybe you bring it down a nudge. So that, and the question becomes not so much tuning chords, but showing the intonation while still melodically it's sounding in tune instead of it thinking purely harmonically so yeah i will i would play the the e natural a little low and i'd make sure the d is not flat at all yes right, <laughs> right? so yes making some adjustments but not going going full on what you would maybe do in the orchestra well, if a student then um, is going to the audition, they're prepared, and you think they're really well prepared, and if they've got the basics down, is there anything you tell them about the mental aspect of taking auditions? Yeah. So you have to care less without being careless. So part of it is um, goal setting, and the goal of going to the audition can't be to win it because that's not in your control, unless you have the ability to um, be in two places at once and, and vote on the committee for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So what is in your control? Well, to play well. Okay. But that's too, too vague. So then, then where do you go from that? Well, you need to set some sort of an attainable goal. And if you think about there being a process of, of learning how to audition and growing from one audition to another, because face it, we most of the time we spend with the instrument is us alone in a room, okay? Small percentage of that we spend in rehearsal or playing for a teacher. An even smaller percentage is playing concerts, and the smallest percentage is playing auditions. So we're inexperienced in, in that in comparison with everything else we do on the instrument, right? Right. So if you go in and say, okay, um, today my goal is intonation, use that for an example. That's an attainable goal. It's something for you to focus on that keeps you from being overwhelmed by the moment and will actually help your playing. You know, maybe it's, oh, I tend to faz out in the low register, so I want to make sure that I'm playing Schumann 2, that I'm, I'm, I'm good going into low Cs. Or if you're playing the second part down to the low Gs. You know, it could be something specific like that, but setting attainable goals really helps to eliminate being overwhelmed by the moment. So that's, that's one thing. Um, another thing is just understand that you need to, what you need to show in each excerpt and that can be prepared for. Um, so if you go in and, and, and think, why is this excerpt being asked? The corollary to that is of course, then what do I have to show? Sometimes it's easy, you know, like, Shahrazad. <laughs> okay. 
I gotta have clean multiple tonguing. Okay, cool, great. That's that one's easy. What about Lenor three? Why is that asked? That's a little harder question because you know it could be that conductors know it because it's a trumpet so, <laughs> trumpet plays by itself, um, which is why you know pictures Mahler five opening those are all trumpet by itself excerpts, which is sort of interesting in and of itself. But it's for Beethoven style. What does that mean? Do you vibrate on the long notes? Do you, well, for me, it comes down to, okay, do you have a sense of what the presence, what the sound of the trumpet needs to be on this? And are you going to play with good articulation, you know, on the low Ds and on the B flats? Are you going to play the arpeggio in tune? You know, it's, it's much, again, a little bit more factual and then coming down to just making the right feel for it. Um, understanding how it fits into the opera, what, what you want that to sound like um the the question about well would you play it on a c trumpet would you play it on a rotary trumpet would you play it on a b flat trumpet would you play it on a b flat rotary trumpet i find that less important unless you're playing an audition for a german orchestra where then you would play it on a rotary trumpet and probably a b flat rotary trumpet yeah uh, um but for an american orchestra I'm not sure it matters what trumpet you play it on as long as it's super convincing. Well, which mouthpiece sounds better? Oh, shut up. <laughs> right. Um, and you have students ask questions like that. Well, of course they do. Yeah. You know, I, I'm sure I did back then too. Like, well, what's yeah. the right thing to do? Well, the right thing to do is to sound good. In part two, Tony and Dave discuss the complexities of technique versus music in both practicing and in performance. Tony asks Dave what his first rehearsal as a new member of the Philadelphia Orchestra was like and what it was like to play under Wolfgang Savalisch. They get into another aspect of his career, teaching, and the difference between teaching at Curtis and Northwestern. After a couple of miscellaneous questions, including some tennis talk, they conclude by talking about the text of the music and how specific to that text a musician should be. To hear the second portion of Tony and Dave's conversation, please consider becoming a contributing listener by clicking on the big blue button on the podcast website to start a free trial. You can also go directly to anthonyplogue-on-music.supercast.com. As a contributor, you'll be able to listen in to additional audio content and study up on Tony's podcast reflections, where he does a recap of his interviews focusing on suggestions for students. You'll also have access to our Discord server, where you can join an ongoing conversation while meeting and sharing ideas with other listeners. Thank you for listening in, and please be sure to help us spread the word. Yeah.